I walked into our kitchen the other day, maybe about a week or so ago, and my son Jackson, my eight-year-old son, he was sitting at the, the, we had a little island with a couple of stools in our kitchen. He was sitting at the island with the stools, and he had a fork in his hand, and he was holding it up straight up and down, and on top of the fork was a piece of cantaloupe. And as I walked into the kitchen, when I saw him, he was licking the piece of cantaloupe over and over again, just licking the outside of the cantaloupe. And I said to him, buddy, why don't you, why don't you take a bite of the, of the cantaloupe? Why do you keep licking the outside of the, of the cantaloupe? And he said to me, he said, well, I, I like the way the juice tastes, but I hate the way it feels in my mouth. I like the way the juice tastes, but, I, but I, some of you are nodding. Like, yeah, I totally get that. That's exactly how I feel about cantaloupe. He said, I, I like the way the juice tastes, but I hate the way it feels uh, in my mouth. Now, as a parent, I want him to get used to eating fruit. I want him to get used to eating things that are, that are good for him. So I gave him a piece of advice. And I think this is a piece of advice that parents have given throughout the generations. I mean, I think we could trace this back thousands of years. When a child is, should eat something that's good for them, but they don't really love the taste of it or how it feels in their mouth, parents give the same advice, right? We say, uh, or you say to a child, listen, just try it. Try it. You'll, you'll grow to love it. It's good for you. Just try it. It's good for you. And we say that over and over. And I remember being a kid and not liking vegetables and not liking other things and having my grandparents or my parents look at me and say, well, just try it. It's good for you. Right? We all make that same uh, face. We kind of something like this. No, I don't want to try it. People say, just try it. It's good for you. Try it. Learn to like it. It's good for you. Uh, we come to this sermon this morning. And we come to this, this, uh, this uh, passage of Scripture this morning. And we're in this series through the month of January. We're talking about what would it look like for you to be able to define God's will for, for this year for you. We've talked about this in the past couple of weeks. God has a plan for you. And your life. Things that he calls you to do. And the question is, how do you determine that? And so over the past couple of weeks, we introduced this, this diagram uh, to you. And we said, if you can figure out the ways God has gifted you, I think this is a scriptural model for figuring out God's will for your life. If you can find out how God has gifted you and uncover a unique burden that God has put in your heart. I listened to Aaron speak. And this burden to take the guitar out into the streets of Boston and use music as a way to reach people for Jesus Christ. That is a burden that God has given to him and the team that he works with. That may not be your burden. God would give you a different burden that is important for the kingdom. So God unveils this burden. You listen to God's voice and God opens up doors of opportunity. If you can figure out those four circles, how they come together in your life, I promise you right in the middle of those circles is what God wants you to do. Now, determining those things is the hard part, isn't it? It's the hard part. And we're going to talk about, over the next four weeks, things that you can be doing in your life, things that all of us, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we call ourselves Christians, need to be doing in our life in order to be doing the things that God calls us to do. And so this week, we're going to talk about opening up the Bible and reading it for yourself. And I think that whenever the pastor comes up and tells you 
uh, to read your Bible more, it's a little bit like when your parents and grandparents tell you to try your vegetables, right? You know you should be reading it, just like you know you should be eating that healthy food, but it just, it's not your favorite. Let's just be honest. You're not sure that you like the taste of it. And sometimes, I mean, you might like the smell of it. You might be okay, you know, uh, whatever the equivalent of sticking it on top of a fork and licking it is. I don't know what the equivalent of that is when it comes to Scripture. But whatever that equivalent is, like you're okay being around it. You like to, when other people read the Bible and then tell you what they think it means. But this idea of learning to, to read for yourself, the pastor comes up ever so often and says, try it, it's good for you. Try it, it's good for you. It's like the dentist, when you go to the dentist, the dentist is like, you should be flossing more. That's a lot what this, this sermon can sound like. And then you leave guilty and you say, I should be flossing more. I should eat better food. I should read the Bible. And then you do it for a week and then that's it. And so we come to this sermon, and, and that is what I'm going to implore you with. Did you hear the psalmist this morning in this text? Because we have this statement at Mount Hope, and we say it every year. And the statement is that God's word is true. God's word is true, so we don't change the Bible to fit our lives. We allow our lives to be changed by the Bible. This is how we approach this text. And some of you hear that and you say, that's uh, amen. That's exactly how I approach the Bible. And some of us hear this and we say to ourselves, I'm not sure that tastes very good. So the pastor comes up and says, well, try it. It's good for you. And you're not so sure. We get into this psalm and the psalmist uses these words about God's word. In verse 103, he says this. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You picture the psalmist. There's no processed sugar here in the psalmist world. There's, there's no uh, Trader Joe's to go buy organic raw honey. The honey that he is tasting comes straight from the comb. And it is the best. And he says to God about God's word, the scripture, your word is sweeter than that. I love it. I love it. And we look at, at the Bible sometimes and you hear words like that. And, and it's interesting. You, you wonder, how could you be, yes, reading the Bible is a good thing to do. It's a good spiritual discipline. Uh, it's something that we ought to do each, each day. But how do you get to the point where you love this text to that point? Where you speak about it in these terms. You look at all the different terms that the psalmist uses for God's word in these verses that we just read. And if you were to go through all of Psalm 119, as Justin said, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's also an acrostic for every Hebrew letter uh, as you go through all the Hebrew letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic, each stanza as you go through Hebrews 119. So it's an interesting uh, section of scripture to look at and to study. But if you were to go through, you would see even more terms for God's word. And it's almost like the psalmist loves to get into the details. You know how when people see a brand new baby, they don't just say, oh, the baby looks nice. They get detailed. They say, look at those toes. Look at that nose. 
Look at those eyes and those ears. Like, look at every part of this newborn is just amazing and perfect. And that's almost as, as I hear the psalmist going into God's word, how he approaches it. He uses at least five terms in these verses to talk about God's word. First of all, he calls it the word of God. And all of these are different Hebrew words that are in the text. It's not like the English translators popped out the thesaurus and said, how can we translate the same word different ways? These are different Hebrew words in the text. That the psalmist is saying, how can I come up, what words can I use to describe the detail with which I love God's word and I love the scripture? So he has this word, word, and that's the most general term that he uses, encompassing the whole. And then he says, I love the law of the Lord. And what, what is he referring to, the law of the Lord? Well, you have to think about it. Because for the psalmist, when he's writing this, all he would have of God's word at this point is the first five books of the Bible. The Torah or the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books that existed at this time. And so when he's talking about the law, he's talking about that Old Testament Levitical law. The law in Deuteronomy that we read about. The Ten Commandments that you find in the book of Exodus and repeated uh, in Deuteronomy. So he's saying, I love those things. And then precept. Precept is this word that gets right down to the detail of it. Like, I don't just love the law as a whole. I love your word. I love the law sections of your word. But I love every last little tiny detail that you give. And if you've ever read through the book of Leviticus, it's a lot of detail there in the law. And he loves it. David says, just in these verses we read, I'm overwhelmed by the testimonies about your law. The things that people say. The stories that I read. And you think about those first five books of the Bible. The testimonies to your law. The life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those, Joseph and all the people that are written about in those first five books of the Bible. Moses and Aaron and Caleb. Like all those people. He said, I love the testimony that proves your law true. And I love your command. I love that you are the God who is in authority. And you are the one that gets to tell us exactly what we are to do. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the thing that the psalmist loves about God's word, the thing that makes it sweeter than honey, are the things that I think for us and many of us today make the law, make God's word distasteful. David says, you know what I love? You know what's sweet on my lips? is that you're in control of my life. And you get to command me. You get to, you get to give me your law and tell me what to do. In fact, even down to the tiniest details of how my life should be operated and what I should do and say and think. God, you tell me exactly what to do. And I think that many of us look back at that and we say, how can that be the thing that you love and find sweet about God's word? Because it's the thing that I find and the people around me find so distasteful about God's world, word. In fact, I don't know if, if you hear this, but I hear this many times from people that don't follow the Lord when I talk to them or don't read the Bible. 
they would say something like, I, I don't know how you let such an old book tell you how to live your life. How do you let such an ancient text tell you today what you should do and what you should say? And then they'll throw in some, you know, brilliant line like, don't you know it's 2023, right? I don't know what that means, but yeah, it's 2023. And I'll say, well, what do you do? And they'll say, well, I like mindfulness, meditation. And I want to say, Buddha was born in 560 BC, but I don't say that. I say, I say, wow, that's really new and interesting. So much of us, the, we read these things in the text. And it seems old. It doesn't taste like the psalmist says it tastes. The American Bible Society actually just released a, a study uh, from last year. And it was interesting because they said that the reports of people who read the Bible on a regular basis dropped significantly in 2022 in, in America. And... <laughs> The way they define regular is interesting. They define regular as three times a year, which I would, I would say is a very generous use of the word regular. But the percentage of people who said they read the Bible three times a year in the United States, from 2011 to 2021, it was half of people said that. But last year, and they said in the study, they're not sure why, that number dropped to 39%. I mean, it's no secret that our culture has a distaste or an unacquired taste for what's here. And I wonder how many of us, as, even those of us that call ourselves Christians, we're kind of like my son, where we come to church and, and we, we like being around it and, and it smells nice and it's great when other people have read it and they kind of tell us, you know, how we could apply it to our lives, give us some life hacks to make things better. But for ourselves the deep love and appreciation that the psalmist has. It's just not, like, we don't have that taste. When you think about law, the law tastes bad, doesn't it? When uh, it seems to be against you, restricting you, the law tastes bad. Like, when you're speeding, and there's eight cars around you also speeding at the same speed, but the cop picks you out of the pack and pulls you over and gives you a ticket. In those moments, the law tastes terrible. We don't like the law. But when you're driving at the speed limit and you're doing the right thing and someone comes up and they're weaving in and out of traffic and they're going 90 miles an hour and they're being unsafe and dangerous and two miles down the road, you see them pulled over getting a ticket, all of a sudden the law tastes sweet because it is to your benefit. We love it when the law is to our benefit, but we don't like it when it feels like it's restricting us and to our detriment and punishing us. And I think so many people feel like the law of God is restriction and punishment. But the psalmist here says the exact opposite. The psalmist says, no, 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 the law of God is to my benefit. And I want to point out quickly in the time that we have left, the four things that I see him say in these verses about how the law of God is to his benefit. And I want to challenge you for this year that you would taste the word of God this year. 
that you would experience that it is to your benefit to do so so that you might find the things that the psalmist finds here. The first thing I see in the text, and I see it right at the beginning, and the psalmist doesn't use this particular word, and yet I feel like this is the, the sense that he's getting at. He says that the word of God gives him hope. The word of God gives him hope. And look right there in verse 92. He said, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The word of God gives me hope in the middle of, of everything that I'm going through. And over the last three years, as we live, lived through everything that we've lived through, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have more hope in your life? There was a study that came out just very recently that I thought was so interesting. And it's from Harvard University's Human Flourishing Program. I didn't know Harvard University had such a program, but they're right down the street here. And they released a study uh, just not too long ago. And in that study, this is what they found. And I feel like you know this isn't skewed towards Christians because of who it comes from. They had a 100-point scale of hope in the study. Zero meaning that you feel very hopeless. 100 meaning you're the most hopeful person on the face of the earth. And they found that people who regularly read the Bible on average scored 33 points higher on that scale than people who report not reading the Bible. That Harvard University, of all places, found that in the year 2000, at the height of the pandemic, the people who had hope at the height of racial tension, at the height of everything else that we were going through during that time, the people who had the greatest amount of hope, there was a correlation between Scripture reading and hope. The people that said they read the Bible three or four times a year scored an average of 42 on the hope scale. But look what happens. People that read the Bible monthly, 59. People that, that read the Bible weekly, 66. People that read the Bible multiple times a week, at least three times a week, were scoring 75 on the scale. And I feel like the study just proves something true that the psalmist already knows. When I am tasting your word, I have hope. I'm reminded of who you are, God, in the midst of everything that's going on around me. I'm reminded that there is, a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel in the midst of this affliction. I have hope. The second thing I hear the, word, uh, the psalmist say about the word of God is that when you, the reason that it tastes so sweet to him is because God's word doesn't just give hope, it also gives life. And he says that right in the next verse in 93. I will never forget your precepts. Remember, precepts are the little tiny details. Those, those, those most particular laws of God. For by them you have given me life. By them you have given me life. I love the way that Tim Keller says this. Uh, the, the pastor and, and, and professor Tim Keller, he says, he says, many of us think that freedom is about the, the dissolution of rules. That if we could just get rid of rules, that, that life would be better. But he said true freedom and true living is about having the right boundaries in place. He said, go up to a fish that's in a fish tank. Break the glass and say, I'm setting you free. And see if that fish lives a better life. He said it's the same way with us. It's about finding the right boundaries so that it, who God has created us to be and how God calls us to live, that we're able to flourish within the right environment. And that's exactly what the psalmist says. 
God, your law sets up the right boundaries in my life so that I, that I experience all the good things that you have, have designed for me. When we were thinking about this, we came across uh, a person that I had never heard of before, but another person who's right down the street here at MIT. And she, her name is Dr. Rosaline uh, Picard. She's 59 years old, and she's a faculty member at the MIT Center for Neurobiological Engineering. And she also started a company, Effectiva, which provides emotion AI technologies now used more than by 25% of the Fortune 100. And I hear that, and I think to myself, I mean, who hasn't done that, right? That's pretty easy. She's an incredibly learned person, learned, I think you have to say learned, incredibly learned person. And her testimony is fascinating. She says this. She said, I grew up in a family that never went to church or talked about religion. I thought people who were religious had thrown their brains out the window. <laughs> I used to babysit for this family. He was a doctor and they went to Bible studies. They invited me to church and I told them I was sick. They invited me again and I told them I was sick. Faking sickness to the doctor, though, didn't really work. They caught on that I didn't want to go and they told me that what I believe matters. They asked me if I had read the Bible. I was a straight A student, one of those obnoxious kids who thought myself really smart. So I thought I should probably read the best-selling book of all time. I agreed to take their advice to read the book of Proverbs one day for a month. I saw all there was was wisdom. Not wacky, made-up, gobbledygook, but stuff I could learn from, and I was humbled. Then I set out to read the whole Bible, and that changed me. I expected to find phony miracles and assorted gobbledygook. To my surprise, the book of Proverbs was full of wisdom. She read through the entire Bible twice. She said, I felt this strange sense of being spoken to. Part of me was increasingly eager to spend time with the God of the Bible, but an irritated voice inside of me insisted I would be happy once I finally moved on. It took time because I didn't want to believe in God and I resisted. But as I read the Bible, I felt God talking to me. I eventually went to church and the pastor challenged us to consider inviting Jesus Christ to be Lord of our life. That sounded wacky to me, but I decided to run it as a scientific experiment. If it's stupid, it won't make a difference. And if it makes a difference, wouldn't I be better? to have the mind of the whole universe as Lord of my life. So I took that step, and it has made an enormous difference. And then what's up on the screen there? I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today I walk with joy alongside the most amazing companion anyone could ask for, filled with the desire to keep learning and exploring. I love that testimony. And what a place as a leader on the campus of MIT to be so bold in sharing that testimony. Dr. Picard when I hear her tell her testimony, says, I thought I knew what life was. But when I started reading the Bible and started feeling God speak to me, I found out what life really is. If you're looking for hope, 
if you're looking for life. You need to start tasting this and find that it's good. There's another thing that the psalmist says about the scripture. He says that it's hope and life, but it also gives me wisdom. Did you catch that uh, in, the, in the verses here? He uses these verses. He said, I understand more, that, or excuse me, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. So I have more wisdom and understanding than the smartest people around me because I read your word. And do you know who I think of when I think of that? I think of a man that some of you know and some of you have ne never had the chance to meet. And his name is Edgar Bartlett. And Edgar was called home by the Lord just a few short weeks ago. But I was thinking about Edgar this week as I thought about the psalmist saying, I am wiser than anyone around me. And I understand more than the aged and the people that have all the degrees. Edgar, Edgar grew up in Barbados. He told me that he, Edgar and I had a lot of conversations over the past 20 years. And he told me that I don't, I don't exactly remember the grade. He, I don't even think he really knows the grade that he completed. It was just when you were 8 to 12, you just stopped going and helped with the family house business. So he didn't have much schooling. He came to the United States when he was 18 years old. I remember one day I was helping Edgar move uh, from his house in Burlington to a new condo that he had in Woburn after his wife Myra had, had gone home to be with the Lord. And I walked into his house and Edgar, I mean, you can't sugarcoat it. Edgar, he was a hoarder. I think, I think part of his, it just is what it is. And he knew it and we all knew it. And so moving Edgar out of his house was, wow, that was a task. And so we walked into his office and he had this big roll top desk and you couldn't even see the roll top because papers were everywhere. And we started cleaning it out. And as we were cleaning it out, he, he said, he kept pulling out different employee records. And I'll never forget this. He was like, oh, here's, here's when I drove an MBTA bus for 16 years. And here's when I was a barber. And here's when I was a real estate agent. And here's when I owned a farm in Medfield. And here's when, uh, I, and then he, his current job was he was working at MIT in the labs. And his job was to take care of the animals that were being used for research and experiments. Here's when I worked at MIT. And I kept, I kept, I kept joking with him. I said, Edgar, is there, a, is there any job that you haven't had uh, on this face of the earth? But none of the jobs that Edgar had are jobs I think that the world would look at and say, wow, what wisdom, what understanding. But you know what I watched over the years at this church? Edgar lived till he was 98 years old. He saw some stuff. And he loved God's word. Loved it. We have all these people at church with letters after their names, going into degree programs, big important jobs. And they would get to places in their life where they didn't know what to do. And they couldn't figure out what God was telling them to do next. And do you know who they asked? Edgar. He was the wisest guy in the room. 
not because of degree programs or, or the books that he had read, but he loved this book. And I can see some of you smiling who knew Edgar right now because you know it's true. He would sit in a cafe with a cup of coffee at our Burlington location, and people would just come every Sunday morning and talk to Edgar. And some of you in this room have gone to Edgar. And he didn't know what it was like to be trying to figure out your PhD program. But he was a wise guy because he understood the Word of God. And if you want to know what to do with your life, we're talking about, about wisdom and understanding and moving forward in God's will this year. You need to be meditating on the Word of God. Not just reading, but meditating. Holding it in your heart. That's how you gain wisdom and understanding. And there's a final thing that I hear the psalmist talking about in this text. Not just that it gives us hope and it gives us life and it gives us wisdom, but that the word of God gives us direction. I hold back my feet from every evil way, he says in verse 101, in order to keep your word. And in verse 104, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And in this verse that you might be familiar with, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. He says, God, when I don't know what is the dangerous way and what is the right way, your word illuminates that decision for me. It makes it clear. And I have found that when I take the step that your lamp illuminates for me, that that always ends up being the right path. I said this to you a couple of weeks ago. I said, I said, if you're like me, you wish that God was up, that the word of God was up like in a helicopter with a searchlight, a spotlight. And then when you're standing on the path, that light would show you all the way to the end. And you would be able to see, oh, I'm going to go here and here and here and here and here. And then I end up at the end happily ever after. But the psalmist says, no, no, your word is like a lamp to my feet. And picture being out in the middle of the wilderness. Thousands of years before electricity. And just having a lamp. And how much gets illuminated around you. And the psalmist says, this is what your word does. I don't know where to go, but it lights up the next step. And I can see that there's no rock there. I can see that there's no animal there. I can see that it's safe to step, and so I go. And that's why I love your word. It would be wonderful to have clarity for the next step, wouldn't it, in your life? And the psalmist says, if you want it, you need to be tasting this. It is It is good. And it's funny how tastes change over time, isn't it? Last night we went out to eat as a family. And for my side, I got Brussels sprouts mixed with sweet potatoes. The 12-year-old version of me was throwing up in his mouth. All right? <laughs> but I loved it. It was great. I, it, was, it tasted fantastic. Tastes change over time, don't they? And some of us don't have a taste for God's word. Some of you have lost your taste for God's word. That happens too. You eat a certain food for a while. You, you talk about how much you like it. You don't eat it for a few years. You remember fondly how much you liked it. And you go back and taste it again. And you say to yourself, why did I like this so much? That happens with God's word too. You read it. 
apply it to your life. You gain hope, life, wisdom, direction. And then you stop and you come back and you say, why did I, why did I love this so much at that point? You've lost your taste for it. I'm not going to tell you that every time you open up this book and read, that it's going to be the greatest moment you've ever had every single day. But I will tell you that if you taste a little bit each day, I mean, just try it. I think sometimes we set too, too much of an audacious goal for ourselves. Don't go from zero to I'm reading the Bible in a year. Just taste it. Meditate on a few verses each day. Open up the Gospel of John. Open up Psalms. Open up Proverbs. Do what Dr. Picard did. Challenge yourself to read a chapter in the book of Proverbs each day for a month. There's 31 chapters in the book, so it takes about a month to read it. And see what God might start saying to you. See how God might start speaking to you. Taste it and see that it's good. In fact, I love the verse in Psalm 34, verse 8. The psalmist says, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's the invitation to us with God's word, to taste and see that it's good. I know every single person, I don't know a single person that I have met in this world that cannot use more hope, that cannot use more life, that cannot use more wisdom, and that cannot use more direction for each day. There's a single person in our world that doesn't want more of that. And this is where it's found. As we come back and eat over and over and over again, our hearts are drawn to it. And just like he says, I hate every evil way. The sin that lives inside us loves the evil way. But as I come back over and over again, my tastes are changed so that my spirit wants what God wants. And my desires are shaped to his desires. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And just remind you what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And I don't know how we get it in our heads that this book and that our the Savior Jesus Christ actually is the one who comes to hinder and stop. But that's certainly how it feels sometimes. That's certainly how it feels to our world. That this is here to stop us and constrict us and hold us back. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. God says, I've given this word that you might find hope and life and wisdom and direction for today. So taste it. Taste and see that it's good. Don't just be around it this year. Open it up and see what God has to say to you. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that you are not silent 
and far off. But thank you that you speak to us. Not just that you have spoken and that it's written down, but that as we read, you continue to speak and you continue to offer hope and you continue to offer life. You continue to offer wisdom and you continue to offer us direction. And Father, there are so many of us in this room right now that in our families and in our relationships, in our jobs, and in life decisions, we can't figure out what's next. God, as we open your word and we read it, we trust that your spirit will speak to us. And I feel compelled right now in this moment to ask the same question that the pastor asked Dr. Picard when she was searching. Why would you not make the mind of the universe the Lord of your life? Why would you not pray to him and ask him to be in control? I invite you to do that today. Run as a scientific experiment. See what God might do in your life. Holy Spirit, come now and be with us as we worship. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's close out our time together in song.